and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter again. Our text for today is found in chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. Some of you, by looking ahead and anticipating the flow of our study, would think that today is the last day that we're going to spend in the book of 1 Peter. And I am delighted to inform you and disappoint you, you don't know me well enough. We are near the end of our study. Lord willing, we have one more message left. But I hope by now that the theme and the emphasis of this book is unmistakably clear. The Apostle Peter has written this letter to persecuted and suffering Christians throughout the Roman world in the first century. And he writes for the purpose of encouraging them and strengthening them in their faith so that they will live steadfastly, faithfully, and godly in their present circumstances. He writes to encourage them. He writes to build them up in their hope in Christ, even as they suffer for his name. And yet, Peter's letter is not some general call to just hang in there and hope for the best. That's the kind of wisdom the world gives. Well, the sun will come up tomorrow. Yes. And so will the bad guys. So what do we do? That is the essence of what Peter is writing here. He's not giving them empty wisdom. He's not giving them general, meaningless, proverbial truth. He is speaking to them in their situation according to his own experience, and he is teaching them how to navigate the hardships of life in a sinful and broken world. Hardships that are real and are serious. And the truth that he gives is truth that applies not just to the first century world in that situation, but this is divinely inspired truth for every Christian in every age. And so Peter teaches God's people how to live steadfast, steady, faithful, godly lives in the midst of the world's hostility, mockery, and rejection. And the foundation, the basis for everything that Peter has said throughout this, this book is found right away at the very beginning. If you flip back and look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. This is where he lays out the direction and the tone of the entire book when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Beloved, these are verses that you need to read on a regular basis in your own life. Because here, Peter sets the tone for all of the encouragement that he's going to give to these suffering Christians. And he doesn't say, well, it could be worse. Or there's somebody suffering worse than you are. He brings them right back to the gospel. He brings them right back to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he says, whatever you face in this life, real and bad as it might be, here is where your hope lies. This basis for the Christian's steadfast endurance and hope in this world is not found in any effort that we make in our own strength. Suffering for Christ strikes the rich and the poor alike. It strikes men and women alike. It strikes old and young. North, south, east, west, day and night. Suffering for Christ is an equal opportunity offender. But the Christian's hope is this. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And we Christians understand when we say that, what we're talking about is who He is and what He has done. The reality of what He does for His people and who He is. He is the eternal God. He is the one we just read about in Psalm 46. He is the one who was born on earth in human flesh who lived a perfect life in accordance with God's law in our place, who died a sinner's death according to God's justice in our place, and he rose again from the grave in victory over sin and over death. And in that, he has reconciled to God all who believe in him. And he has guaranteed eternal life to his people. And furthermore, in Christ, not only do God's people have hope for the future in eternity, but we have hope, strength, and joy right now in this present world because of it. Even in the most difficult of circumstances. And so Peter writes this letter to remind God's people of who Jesus is. In your darkest moments, in your greatest struggles, what do you need to know? What do you need to see? You find out it's not a what, after all, it's a who. You need to see Christ. That is the basis. That is the source. That is the motivation for the steadfast, faithful, godly living that Christians need in this present world. And on that basis... On that foundation, that confession of Christ, Peter also gives practical instruction throughout this letter on what the confession, what our confession of Christ is to look like and how it is to govern each aspect and every experience of our lives. And it all culminates again in chapter 1. He lays it out at the very beginning. He tells us where he's going. And he gives this overarching command in chapter 1 verses 13 through 16, when he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. On one level, that is instruction that Peter is looking, saying, look, remember who Christ is and remember what he's doing in your life. Therefore, stay the course. Don't get shaken by the pressures of the world. You've been made holy in Christ. 
Now stay the course. Continue to pursue godly character. Because of what God has done for us through Christ, and because of who we are in Him by His grace alone, through faith alone, we are now called to live for Him and to strive for Christ-like character and behavior in every facet of our lives. This is the work of God in us by His Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. This is what He does in all who belong to Him. It is a transformative work. And it is a work that we have been called to participate in, not to gain standing with God. We already have that through Christ, but to live out the new life that he has created in us. And so throughout this letter, the Apostle Peter has laid out for us the practical application of the new birth in Christ Jesus and this call to holiness. And he teaches us how this ought to transform our focus, and our lives in this world. We are no longer looking at this world or looking to this world as a source of joy or hope. Not that we believe every aspect of the world is hopeless. We're not, we're not discouraged, depressed people. But we are not looking to this world for our hope and joy because we have found it perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And so Peter has taught us that the world is passing away, but the word of the Lord and our eternal inheritance in him endures forever. And therefore, our hope and our joy are steadfast because we are looking to heaven. That's chapter one. And then Peter goes on to teach how this heavenly hope and this steadfast joy in Christ affect our relationships and our daily lives, even talking about how this affects how, how we relate to our earthly authorities and how we behave in our homes and how we respond to all types of suffering and mistreatment. That in every situation and in every experience, we are striving to keep our eyes on him and to be a shining light of the gospel to the people that we see and interact with day to day. That's chapters two through four. And this is the essence of Peter's teaching throughout the entire book. And now as we come to chapter 5 and get to the end of the book, Peter now gives some summary instruction that sort of takes everything he's said so far and brings it into some crucial concluding exhortations for God's people as we strive to live by his power and wisdom, as we strive to live, as we read in Titus, soberly, righteously, and godly in this present evil age as we eagerly await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text today is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. But we need to include verses 1 through 4 here for context, for review. We'll see that as we go along. So please follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. As you look at this text, I'm sure you notice several familiar themes. Shepherding, submission, prayer, spiritual warfare, maybe some others. But there is one particular theme that runs throughout this passage and ties all the other themes together. It is the theme of humility. The word is only mentioned in verses 5 and 6, but its manifestation or its practical application shows up in every verse. What is humility? Well, humility, the word that is used in this passage, has the idea of lowliness of mind. It has the idea of lowliness of mind and submission to God. Submission to God as one who thinks lowly of himself. It is the direct opposite of pride, and it is the direct opposite of self-exaltation and self-sufficiency. Godly humility means getting our eyes off of ourselves and onto God and onto our Lord Jesus Christ. It means devoting our lives to Him and His purposes alone, let come what may. It means submitting myself to whatever He ordains for my life and obeying His commands at all costs. It means truly seeking and finding my joy in Him alone and not in anything that this self-centered world offers. And so the title of our study this morning is Steadfast Character in a Foreign Land. Sort of continuing the theme of the study as a whole, which is steadfast hope in a foreign land. Here is what the character looks like of those who are steadfast in their hope. I want us to consider this morning from this text five concluding exhortations from Peter on what steadfast, godly character in a sinful world looks like, all flowing from this central concept of humility. And the first area of steadfast, humble character that Peter highlights then is humble leadership. Humble leadership. We see that in verses 1 through 4. We looked at those verses last week, so if you weren't here I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message for a fuller treatment 
uh, verses 1 through 4. But here, Peter specifically addresses the elders or the pastors of the church, and he calls them, in essence, to lead the church with humility, to be humble examples to the church. Again, the word humility is not used in the verses, but the character that he describes is a manifestation of godly humility. And then he expects these elders to be a model of that, to be an example of that to the people. And so Peter calls them to shepherd the flock of God. And that imagery we saw is intentional. There's a reason the imagery is shepherd and sheep. It is naturally humble work. And then he calls them to exercise oversight, to lead the people willingly and eagerly, not under some sort of compulsion or selfish ambition or shameful gain. And these leaders are not to be domineering over God's people as despotic tyrants, but are to be examples to the flock, leading them in godliness by pursuing it themselves and feeding the people patiently and lovingly by the preaching of the word of God. And so the humble character of, that God expects from the church begins, in essence, with the leadership of the church, setting the example. Who is sufficient for these things? I mean, have you ever met a truly humble pastor yet? I doubt it. Not that they don't exist, but it is hard to find. Who is sufficient for this task? The truth is, no one is sufficient for this task. But by the grace of Christ alone, at work in the heart of people who are submitted to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God. That is why we must turn our focus and our hopes to Christ alone. Our hopes for stability in this world are never found in any other person. Only Christ is sufficient for these things. But as we look to Him, He forms His character in us. And that is our prayer for one another. That ought to be our prayer for our leadership. And that is our earnest pursuit as a church. That brings us to our next point of instruction. Striving after steadfast, godly character demands humble leadership. And now secondly, it demands humble relationships. Humble relationships, specifically within the church among God's people. Peter says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter first calls out those who are younger. We talked briefly last week about the different ways that could be understood. I'm not convinced it's purely speaking about age within the church, but maturity level, particularly in relationship to the elders who he has just called out. But either way, whatever the case is, they're called to be subject to the elders. There's your humble response to the leadership. But then Peter goes on to make a clear call to everyone in the church, regardless of their age, their position, their maturity, or their level of responsibility. And he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. <laughs> Every one of us is called to humility in our relationships with everyone else in the church. And that phrase, clothe yourselves, 
obviously has the idea of putting on a garment. Putting on an article of clothing that covers you. And something by which when people see it on you, they will identify you with it. That's the idea. In fact, this word specifically was used in reference to a slave who put on the apron before serving. Fitting illustration, right? For those who are supposed to conduct themselves with humility. And once again, who modeled that for us? This takes my mind back to John chapter 13. When on the night that Christ was betrayed and arrested, as he sat at dinner with his disciples, after eating, he got up, he took off his outer garment, and he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he knelt down, and he went around and washed his disciples' feet, including the one who would betray him. And he knew it. He dried them with the towel. And what was the lesson that Jesus taught in that intense moment? He tells us, John 13, verse 12 through 15, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher or your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. In other words, our interaction with God's people, with one another, right here, even within our own local church, must be a relationship marked by humility and a servant spirit. That means we are not, any one of us in this church, to advance our own personal agendas or ambitions. That means we're not here to get our own way or have everything just as we like it. Every single one of you could pick out something about this church that you don't care for. I guarantee it. But the point is not that we would get everything just perfect so that we have it all just the way we like it. No, this is a church that is made up of people. And our relationship with people is to be a relationship of humility and service for their benefit, which means we defer to one another. It means we serve one another humbly and sacrificially to the point you know, that, that we point one another to Jesus Christ. And we are here simply to help one another grow in our knowledge of him and in the grace of our Lord. We defer to one another in love because there simply is no room in a godly church for self-serving saints. Why? How serious is this? Well, Peter makes reference to Proverbs 3. 34, when he says God opposes the proud. What does that mean? Well, the language in Proverbs 3 is that he scoffs at them. And the big picture is that he sets himself at war against them. But, he says, he gives grace to the humble. A steadfast and godly church is one in which the people are humble servants toward one another. That is the evidence of God's grace at work in our lives. And Jesus even said in John 13, 35, right after washing the feet, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. And our love is displayed in our humble submission to one another, in our service of one another, in preferring one another, and considering one another more important than ourselves, and looking out after one another's interests above our own, as Paul describes in Philippians 2. Humble relationships are crucial in a church that will stand fast in troubling times. And so we've seen that the steadfast, godly character that God expects in the life of His church begins with humble leadership, and then it transforms our relationship with one another into humble relationships. And then now thirdly, in verses 6 and 7, Peter goes on to call us to humble trust. Humble leadership, humble relationships, humble trust. That is, humble, dependent trust in the Lord. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. There's an object to this action of humbling ourselves. This isn't just abase yourselves and treat yourselves like dirt and beat yourselves and make yourselves grovel in the dirt, right? That's not what he's saying. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Submit yourself to Him. So easy to say, isn't it? But when we suffer, it gets a little more difficult, doesn't it? So often when we suffer adversity in this life, it is easy for us to grow bitter or angry, sometimes even to criticize God, wondering are you even in control anymore? Do you even care anymore? The question is goodness. The question is sovereignty. And whether we realize it or not, in those moments, we are actually trying to set ourselves up as a judge over God. That's pride. That's right up there with the nations raging against the authority of God. That's not humility. And there is no good that can come from that. Our call is to recognize that our God is the Almighty God, that He is the Creator of the ends of the earth, that He is the sovereign ruler over every aspect and every detail, including every moment of our lives. It is not for us to dictate the terms or the details. It is not for us to answer every question. It is our call to humble ourselves, to bow low in submission to the Almighty God, trusting what we know to be true of Him from His Word, trusting that this sovereign, Almighty God is also infinitely good and is preserving for us our heavenly inheritance that He has promised. Think back to chapter 1, verse 4, where we've already seen that. It is not our responsibility to control every circumstance or to answer every question. We will go through this life with unanswered questions. But it is simply for us to trust our sovereign and loving God, who is the good shepherd himself, and we are to follow him and to rest in him. And praise God, we can, as Peter describes here. And there is a promise to all who humbly trust in the Lord in this way. Peter says, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Now, make no mistake, 
He's not talking about, well, if you just endure the suffering, then everybody in the world is going to look on you with, with awe and wonder, and you're going to be exalted among people. That's not what he is getting at. The idea here is lifting up your head, bringing you into the glory that he has promised you, which is your eternal inheritance. That is not wishful thinking. That is a sure promise. You may suffer now, but he will exalt you. God's intention in your life, even when you suffer, is not to do you harm, but to lift you up in his time and in his way. Yes, there is an eternal focus here, looking at the eternal inheritance that has been promised to us. But there is also a present time focus in this as well. Though we may never be exalted in human terms, and though we may not necessarily even get out of our suffering before death overtakes us, there is a certain exaltation that God gives to his people even now. A comfort, a lifting up, an encouragement, a divine preservation that God gives to his people in the midst of their suffering. And at the proper time, whether in this world or in the next, our suffering will be over and we will be forever with our Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any higher exaltation than that? Is there any earthly comfort you would rather have than that? So what does it look like right here and right now to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? Peter goes on to explain in verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That sounds like a call to prayer, doesn't it? Well, I think it is, at least in part. There is a call to prayer. We must pray, and frankly, I bet none of us prays enough. And so we ought to take this as instruction. Don't be frightened by anything. Don't be worried about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Right? But there's more to it than just prayer. Casting all our anxieties on Him also means releasing them into His care. That has the idea of unloading our burdens on him, like throwing our heavy luggage into the bed of a pickup truck. That's the idea. Instead of carrying the weight on our backs, I heard an illustration recently of a traveler who was walking down a country road carrying several large heavy bags of luggage, tired and struggling under the weight. And a man in a pickup truck pulled over and offered the traveler a ride, a ride and, and encouraged him to throw his baggage in the bed of the truck. And so the traveler smiled and thanked the man for his kindness and proceeded to jump into the bed of the pickup truck. And as the man pulled away, he looked in his rearview mirror and was startled to notice that the traveler was crouched down with the bags still on his shoulders. And so the driver pulls over and he says, why don't you put them down in the bed of the truck? And the traveler says, I would, but I don't want to add any extra burden to the truck. Sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? But is that not sometimes how we approach our anxieties and troubles in this life? Oh, sure, we acknowledge them in prayer to the Lord. As it were, climbing into the truck, 
but we continue to hold our own baggage, taking matters into our own hands, manipulating situations, applying our own limited wisdom rather than casting those burdens onto the Lord. Recognizing that not only is He sovereign, but He cares for us. And confessing in those moments that He is more than strong enough that he is more than wise enough, that he is more than sovereign enough and more than good enough to do with our lives what we could have never imagined for ourselves. Do you believe God is stronger than you or not? Or do you think he needs your assistance? In verse 6, Peter mentioned God's mighty hand, highlighting his sovereignty. Here, Peter mentions God's care, highlighting his goodness. Not only is God big enough and strong enough to handle all of your anxieties, but he is also good enough and caring enough to want to. And so today, my question is, what is it that is burdening you? What is it that is weighing you down with care? What is it that is troubling you? What are you afraid of today? What are you frustrated about? What keeps you awake at night? Cast that burden on the all-powerful, compassionate, loving Lord of hosts. Because He cares for you. Why would you stubbornly insist on handling all these things yourself? You know you can't. None of us can. But God is more than enough. And humbling ourselves under his mighty hand means we swallow our own pride. We swallow our self-sufficient attitudes. And rather, in humble, childlike dependence, cast our anxieties on our loving and powerful Lord. Now, lest we think that casting our cares on him means some kind of fatalism or let go and let God, passive Christianity, Peter goes on in verses 8 and 9 to call us to action. We've seen humble leadership and humble relationships and humble trust, and now he calls us to humble watchfulness. Humble watchfulness. The Apostle Paul makes clear in Ephesians 6, 12, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. In other words, there is a spiritual warfare that follows us everywhere we go in this broken and sinful world. And so Peter, in verse 8, says, he gives this exhortation, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You understand that temptation is all around us, right? Trouble is all around us. The world is broken and sinful. Our own flesh is fallen and sinful. And on top of that, the devil himself is active in all of it. He is described here as our adversary. That is a term that has the idea of a legal accuser in the court of law. He is the one standing on the other side of the room, pointing his finger at you. 
accusing you. Before whom? God. Kind of like the conversation we see in Job 1 and 2. And it's appropriate that he's described as the accuser because the word devil means slanderer and accuser. And God, just as God is opposed to the proud, so the devil is opposed to everyone. He's described like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is, he is on the hunt. He is actively looking to utterly destroy anyone and everyone he can. He is out to destroy even God's own people, if that were possible. And so, he seeks to undermine our confidence in God's power and goodness. That's why we need humble trust in God. He seeks to break our earthly relationships. That's why we need humble relationships within the church. He seeks to undo our reputations as Christians. He seeks to trap us in sin. He seeks to imprison us in guilt. And all of his tactics are subtle. He doesn't walk in as the old song goes and says, allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. He doesn't introduce himself as the devil at all. Subtle. Little by little. And so we need to be sober-minded. And we need to be watchful. That is, awake and alert with our minds clear and focused by the Word of God, informed by the Word of God, led by the Spirit of God, always striving to know Him, to grow in godliness, so that we are not deceived and distracted by the attacks of the evil one. And so while, yes, there is much for us to enjoy in this world, and we should, we must always enjoy it soberly and vigilantly, always watching for subtle temptations and spiritual dangers. Because there is a spiritual war raging on against us, and the stakes are high. And so in verse 9, Peter goes on to say, resist him. Firm in your faith. He doesn't just say, resist him and you figure out how. That's what many Christians want to do today, right? Oh, we're just going to resist the devil, and so we're going to do it in any possible way that we can. If it means tarnishing other people's reputations, if it means knocking things over, if it means boycotting businesses, if it means this, 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 and this. That's not what Peter is talking about here. He says, resist him, how? Firm in your faith, or firm in the faith. This is why we need humble leadership. This is a resistance that is centered on the faith and our grasp of it. This is a resistance that is driven by the word of God as our central focus. This is a resistance of recognizing the attacks, using the tools God has given to resist, to avoid the temptation, to discern the danger and to live in a godly way. This is why we need humble leadership that teaches the word of God. 
This is why we need humble relationships with one another so that in godly community, we can stand side by side with one another in spiritual watchfulness. This is why we need humble trust in the sovereign Lord because this spiritual warfare is greater than we can handle. That's why it is a humble watchfulness. You are not sufficient to go on the offensive on your own against the devil. So be done with this, I bind you Satan kind of stuff. We're not told to do that. In fact, beloved, the war is already won. Our responsibility is to resist, to stand firm in the midst of the storm of temptation. We must go through this life humble and sober-minded, watchful and dependent on God, as we strive to stand firm in the faith that we confess, saturated with the Word of God and submitted to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and ready to forsake all to follow Him. But then Peter gives a word of encouragement and motivation here, still in verse 9. He says, Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's not Peter saying, well, it could be worse. See, other people are suffering too. No, he's saying you are in good company. You're suffering for Christ? Take heart. You're part of the brotherhood. We have jackets. You are not alone in this. This is normal Christianity. This is the typical experience of following Jesus. That's why Peter said back in chapter 4, verse 12, don't be surprised when this comes upon you, as if something strange were happening. This is the way it is. And the fact, Christian, that you are struggling does not necessarily mean that you are a greater sinner than anyone else. In fact, it could be evidence that you are striving faithfully to live for the Lord in a fallen world. Take heart, beloved. You are in good company. The Apostle Paul gave similar encouragement in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What do you need to know in that moment? God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. That brings us finally to verses 10 and 11. We've seen the call to humble leadership, humble relationships, humble trust, and humble watchfulness. Now Peter lifts our spirits with a call to humble expectation. Humble expectation. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I love that first phrase. After you have suffered a little while. It seems like an eternity. No, you haven't tasted eternity yet. This is still the little while part. All the suffering you endure in this life will seem as but a little while compared to the glory of Christ that you will taste in eternity. As the Apostle Paul so wonderfully explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we do not lose heart, Though our outward self 
is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. When I see that phrase, I think about the little rock that I get in my shoe when I'm out running. I haven't broken any bones. I'm still able to run, but it's a little annoyance. And you know what? I even put up with it for a while because I'd rather feel that than have to stop and take my shoe off and shake it out and then put my shoe back on. It's light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You think you know what eternal glory is going to be like. You have no idea, beloved. You don't know. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, like vapor. Here for a moment, gone the next. But the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the hope and expectation that we have in Christ. Though we suffer, we have this promise and this hope that Christ will himself restore. That is, repair, complete, equip completely. He will restore. He will confirm. That is, he will fix in place and he will make steadfast and he will strengthen and establish us. That's a promise both for now and for eternity. In this life, in the midst of our suffering, Christ strengthens us. He protects us. He carries us through it. And by it, he will purify us and mature us and shape and fashion us after the character of Christ. And then ultimately, he will return and take us home to be with himself forever. And we will finally taste that, e that eternal glory in our eternal home. How is all of that possible? Well, Peter says in that great benediction and doxology of verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He didn't say to him be the glory, because that's not what he's talking about yet in this moment. He's talking about dominion. All creation belongs to Christ. All history belongs to Christ. Your life belongs to Christ. He has created it. He governs it for his perfect and good purposes. And though we can't see now how it is all working together, we are promised that it is and that he will bring it all to its good and great conclusion. Now, all of this is meant to be a confident and joyful conclusion to Peter's letter. Now, we haven't gotten to the exact conclusion yet. But this is the benediction portion of it. He is writing to Christians in distress who are suffering for Christ's sake. And he points their attention to their eternal hope in Christ. And with our minds and our hearts firmly fixed, on the sovereignty and the goodness of God, and on the eternal glory that is promised to us, we have all the strength and all the motivation we need to stand firm through the suffering in this life and to remain faithful to our gospel mission. We have every resource we need to persevere in godly character. This is why Christians are the most hopeful and steadfast and joyful people on the planet. Or at least we should be. We have the greatest hope in all the world. 
Why doesn't the world, the rest of the world understand that? Because they can't see it. Because our hope is not something that is found on this planet. It is something that the Lord gives us in Christ. And so we rejoice and we rest. Not because we are so great, but because our God is great and he has accomplished our salvation and secured for us peace with God and eternal life. Now, as we close, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this glorious hope that we've been talking about this morning does not belong to you. How can I say such a mean-spirited thing? My friends, that's not mean-spirited. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, this hope does not belong to you. The Bible says that if you are not in Christ, then you are at war with Him. And worse yet, He is at war with you. And there is nothing in this world that can fix that. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because what Peter is describing here is something that belongs to anybody who has put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Christians are not the recipients of God's favor because we're better than anybody else, but because we are humble sinners who've been saved by God's grace. And anyone, we're told, who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Why would you try to feast and fulfill your longings? Why would you try to satisfy your soul on the dry, empty husks of this world? It won't work. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have an eternal inheritance being preserved for you that not only carries you to eternity, but it carries you through this world. That's where our hope lies. So you must recognize this morning that you are a sinner by nature and deserving of God's judgment. And then you must call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation to be at peace with God. You don't have to earn it. It's already been accomplished. All you have to do is cry out to the Lord, your Savior. And I urge you this morning, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray.